This is Cinema Talk, brought to you by the Department of Communication Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My name is Jim Healy, and I am the Director of Programming for the UW Cinematheque and the Wisconsin Film Festival. On March 20, 2019, 20th Century Fox ceased to exist when the Walt Disney Company completed its acquisition of what was once one of Hollywood's six major studios. Although their catalog stretches back more than 100 years, 20th Century Fox was officially formed in 1935 with the merging of two smaller studios, Fox Film Corporation and 20th Century Pictures. To commemorate this significant moment in cinema history, we invited back a regular Cinematheque guest, film archivist and preservationist Sean Belston. Sean spoke to our audiences and chatted with us here on Cinema Talk. In a career at Fox that spanned more than 25 years, Sean's work in film preservation began with the 1997 reissues of the original Star Wars trilogy. He eventually became executive vice president of media and library services at 20th Century Fox, overseeing all archival and preservation work of the studio's extensive film and television library. Today, Sean is a senior vice president at the Walt Disney Company, where he still looks after the Fox Library, in addition to the Disney Studios catalog. Sean joined us on November 8th and 9th to present a special clip-filled history of 20th Century Fox called Fox and Appreciation, and an archival print of John M. Stahl's great melodrama, Lever to Heaven. The Cinematech series tribute to Fox continues on Friday, December 6th, with a double feature of two pre-code titles from the Fox Film Corporation, 1932's Quick Million, starring Spencer Tracy, and 1933's Blood Money, with George Bancroft, Judith Anderson, and Francis D. Both films were directed by the talented and mysterious Roland Brown. Then, on December 15th, the Cinematheque's 2019 programming will conclude with a contemporary classic from 20th Century Fox, the original 1988 Die Hard, showing in a 35mm print from the collection of the Chicago Film Society. While he was with us in Madison, Sean took the opportunity to sit down and chat with me and my colleague Ben Reiser. Here's our conversation. Sean, can you tell us about your work at Fox and when you when you came there? Actually, I'll, I'll, uh, you, you you mentioned or you're going to mention tonight the that's the Star Wars reissue. I think in 1997 was yeah. was your first kind of major project. Yeah. Uh, in uh, in film preservation at Fox. It's true. So I was uh, I had started uh, in, as a post-production coordinator, uh, office coordinator, general uh, PA gopher type person at Fox in uh, 19, late 1995. And uh, before that, when I was in college, I'd worked at Lucasfilm at Sky, a place called Skywalker Sound in Santa Mo- that had a location in Santa Monica. And I, I'm a lifelong Star Wars fan. I'm just the right age to, for that to be a really important formative movie, like most males of my age. And... Um, and, uh, Same with us. Yeah, right. I mean, it's uh, even at Disney in my in my time there. People are like, you know, we ask them what their favorite movie is, and they say Star Wars. I'm like, all oh, right, I guess that's it's Universal. Uh, <laughs> and when they say that, they they mean the first one. They mean Episode Four, yeah, and, you right? Know, or A New Hope. <laughs> um, but anyway, the uh, so uh, the the studio Fox was just starting to work on the special editions of the Star Wars movies for a re-release, uh, the 20th anniversary re-release of Star Wars and the entire trilogy. In fact, in 1997 and. Uh, 
my boss is uh, uh, at the time is a fellow named Ted Galliano, who is a running feature post-production. He and I sort of became friends, and I said, hey, I want to learn about, I love Star Wars, can I be around this and learn about what's happening? And so he assigned me to go and, and help out. I mean, I literally spent most of my time typing purchase orders, but in the process met all of the editors and supervisors and people that worked on the restoration of Star Wars and the special editions. And, and in a way, it was interesting because it was, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was kind of a crossroads in technology where there were, there, there were crews of people that were working on the film uh, who were uh, decidedly rooted in the photochemical lab world. There was a guy named Leon Briggs who was, uh, who'd worked at Disney actually for many years and at Technicolor and knew all about film technology. And then there were a whole giant team of digital artists that were doing all of the visual effects enhancements and things um, uh, up at ILM. So it was kind of uh, an interesting uh, experience to get to learn about both of those things. But mostly I just love Star Wars and it was fun to be around the process and like learn about, oh wow, what, what uh, things survived and what things didn't survive and and, and what, we, the, what all of these people, mag- magicians, were able to do with what I already thought were pretty awesome visual effects. As we were in that process, as it kind of got toward the end, uh, DVD was just starting out as an idea, and so there was the idea that, well, what is the future value of our library? Um, I was young enough not to know any better, and so I wrote a memo to my boss saying, hey, you know, if you can get me a budget of X, here are the 10 movies that we're going to restore, and, and and we'll start a film restoration program here at Fox, and he championed that, and, uh, and, and I'm embarrassed to say, I won't say how much money I asked for, but it was, I was in my early 20s, so you can imagine if you're in your early 20s and you think of the biggest amount of money you can think of, it was, <laughs> I probably could have gone a little larger, and the movies also I'm a little embarrassed by because they were kind of all of the most obvious Fox movies, The Sound of Music, The Grapes of Wrath, and My Darling Clementine, How Green Is My Valley. But they were happy about that because they knew that those all about were, Eve. Yeah, yeah, right, of course. These are the titles are, that people <laughs> remember. Well, I like to think that. I like to think that that, that that people still thought of those movies sure. then. I mean, you know, I should have probably said Die Hard. That would have been a, that would, <laughs> I might have yeah. been a little more of a current reference. I wasn't even 10 years old at that point, I guess. I guess that's true. Huh. Yeah. Do you remember what went into you coming up with that list of 10? Like, did you have, like, a list of 20 or 30 that you narrowed down? Or No, I was uh, a nerdy guy who, I mean, like, what are the top ten Fox movies I could think of? And I was like, okay, well then, I'm not going to try to think about this too much right. because hopefully we're going to keep going to continue to do more and more, right? And so there were, of course, not there were zero obscurities on that list, and and uh, so Ted took it to uh, Bill Mechanic, who was running the studio at the time, and and Star Wars re-release was super success, was very successful uh, financially, and so we were off to the races. And then mm. DVD uh, was obviously a, a, a sort of an instant market need for this stuff, and then. Pretty quickly, uh, we were we were finding ourselves in a situation where we couldn't restore and remaster movies fast enough to to keep up with the demand, which right. was pretty fun. And at that point, then I got to work on the Tashlin pictures. And, oh, was well, yeah. Herculean? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, really, it's I'm I've found in my experience as a programmer that you know if something is is uh, in, the, in the Fox catalog, it's very likely that you've got remastered material on either new prints or uh, DCPs uh, digital uh, made available. I mean, it was just a huge... It ended up being as much as you could do, right? As much of the catalog as... Like, literally. Yeah. Actually, yeah. And the film prints came out of the fact that when we started, 
funny how quickly things change, but at that time, the late 90s, uh, digital cinema didn't exist. Digital intermediate as a way to finish films sort of existed. Mm-hmm. I think Disney may have had may may have done Snow White at that point. I can't remember. It was somewhere around there wow. when they did the first step, which was the kind of the first big digital, all digital restoration of a movie. Um, we were the, the Lux Lab was still going strong, and we were really lucky to be able to to make prints. The first thing we did was let's inspect the entire library uh, and preserve it photochemically, the way that films had been preserved for. 80 years before that and uh, a byproduct of that were new film prints right part of the f- fun of getting to restore movies is getting to show them so it's like if we're going to make a new set of YCM masters which are black and white uh, panchromatic separations are black and white records of each of the color layers that are in a color a piece of color film for example um, what's the point of making them if we don't end up with something at the end if there's not a film print or some way to actually show the movie uh, does the adventures of Haji Baba still exist if there's not a film print somewhere a wonderful film by the way I think <laughs> maybe then on your next visit we should find a way to show it I finally caught up with it just recently it's pretty crazy it's right? a crazy movie but it's <laughs> there's something really beautiful about it and it's got this small cult uh, following, I think it was 1954, maybe uh-huh. 55, and it's a cinemascope Arabian adventure with John Derrick and. Uh, you can't possibly sell it, and and a the color com- is magnificent. A crazy beautiful color, and this insane earworm of a theme song by, by uh, Nat King Cole. Uh, it's a movie that starts with no logo, no anything. It just starts in the middle of the That's scene, right. and you're like, "What is this movie?" Uh, it's it's there's terrific, no Fox logo at the beginning because it was an, like an Allied artist. Co-release uh, or yeah, co-production or something? I can't remember what the, it was. Yeah, I think that sounds right. But I, it, I remember I was but there's no, by that. Yeah, there's no, there's no main time. I mean, it just the movie right. just literally just kind of like starts like it seems like you missed the changeover from the first reel right. or something and you got the reels in the wrong order, <laughs> which has, has happened uh, as a complaint from projectionists when the few times that the movie's run. <laughs> we're like, missing real one. We're missing real one. Like, no, no, that's, uh, that's how it starts. Just keep running because there is a title sequence that's about halfway through the first reel. Uh, way before it's time, the John Derrick. Uh, God bless has, you for you restoring that one. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but, but you know, but there are film prints of those. There's a film print of that. There are film prints of of so much of the library. Uh, it's been super gratifying to see over the 25 years or so that I've been doing this, how many of them actually get shown. Um, right. It's particularly gratifying when something I'm trying to think of the example now is like that the print never went out somewhere that we made and it's like oh wow someone finally wants to screen <laughs> you know uh, uh, the third voice or something and like right. oh good well uh, hey you know Hubert Cornfield will be happy to know that that's uh, <laughs> someone somewhere uh, wants to book it. I that I've never seen the third voice so. oh it's I've seen Cornfeld's other films. It's oh, really yeah. Pre- uh, Pressure Point. Pressure the, Point. Uh, uh, the 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 night of the following day with Marlon Brando. Yeah. yeah. And, well, Pressure uh, Point is Sidney Poitier. He was like he was like hitting. Uh, yeah, it's and Bobby <laughs> Darren too, right? Yeah. And then but then there's a really good uh, crime film he made in the mid '50s that I think Fox released, but it was uh, it's a Cinemascope black and white film, and it was released. It was. A different production company, but Fox Reese is called Plunder Road. Oh, right. I think it's That's part right. of the Republic Library. Which I've never now. seen. Yeah, because I've only Plunder Road is terrific. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Really good heist film. Well, the third voice is pretty terrific, too, okay. I have to say. You know. Can I ask a quick technical question yep. before you move on? Um, the, these digital preservations of films, when you started that, you were saying it was like at the, at the dawn of the DVD market. So... Have, have those what what was the quality of those original scans and then have you had to go back 
and rescan at higher qualities and is there ever an end to that yeah no that's a really great question i the 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 truth is the scanning technology has gotten so much better over the 20 years that we've been doing it or so and the and the cleanup tools and all of that i mean the first work that we were doing was you know barely 2k meaning 2000 lines of resolution which is you know slightly higher resolution very slightly higher resolution than your hd tv at home uh, and now we're scanning things in 4k with a 16-bit uh, bit depth and 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 a much higher uh, resolution and the tools to to uh, restore them are a lot more sophisticated so yeah the early digital restorations that we made are um to be charitable, the best we could do with the technology that was available at the time, which I like to think is kind of akin to the people that did the original optical work in the first place. I'm thinking specifically of The Robe, uh, the first CinemaScope film, and, and it's got all kinds of practical effects and, and limitations of its time. Rear projection, kind of weird, you know, kind of questionable rear projection work, maybe sketchy opticals, <laughs> and of course the just overall distortion of the first generation CinemaScope lens attachment. Yeah, it kind of makes people on the far ends of the lens look shorter than they actually right. appear. It's got <laughs> right. a, a little bit of a fisheye. Gives effect. you a little bit of a seasickness as like if the camera ever yeah. moves, which it very rarely does. <laughs> uh, so similarly, you know, the first, the early digital stuff, the f first digital work we did on the rope is 2K, and you know, you're hard pressed to make sure that we just want to make sure that we get that all the spears of the Roman soldiers aren't obliterated by the by the tools that we're using to fix other, excuse me, to fix other problems. Whereas now, in 4K, you know, we have a different set of problems. It's almost as if the technology, in some ways, has become advanced enough that uh, we now see additional things that we didn't ever see before. And you're presented with a new set of problems about what is authentic, which is something I'm passionate about and don't have a great mm -hmm. answer for. But it's a more of a feeling than I think a, than, a, than something you could describe in, in, in any kind of scientific terms. Because, for example, um, a movie like The Robe is also very grainy because of the those early Eastman collar and the lenses and everything else. So it's a pretty grainy movie. But when you have it in 4K suddenly, the grain is arguably more apparent, whether mm. it's enhanced or not. And as you start adding colors that you know uh, are more precise than they could have been in a, in a, in a photochemical timing situation, you kind of have to deal with the fact that, like, well, well, okay, it's not grainy on purpose. It's interesting that to see movies today where there's this kind of beautiful attention paid to trying to make something look like this is what a movie looked like in the 70s or this is what, oh, look, it's video and it's like early video so right. it's supposed to look like early television and when in the, you know, the classic era of Hollywood they're trying to make everything look as good as possible and right. we're trying to make it look maybe not not as good. So on a movie like The Robe, you have the, you know, you have the question of like, well, I don't think that Anybody involved in that movie intended for it to, to, for the optical at the end of the movie to look kind of crazy. That was just the best they could do. So, so, but then on the other hand, enhancing it becomes a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I got, I got off topic no, there a little bit, but it's. Uh, you said the word authentic, and I guess that's, that's, usually, that's your line of, of quality is to always try and match what you would imagine the film looked like to its original viewers. But that's much easier said than done, right? right? Sure. Because that in itself is totally subjective. One aspect, one, I guess this is sort of a technical question, maybe you can talk about the, uh, uh, 
an aspect of your work that probably makes that more difficult is the nitrate fire uh, that little affected fairy. Fox Materials in, in 1938, was yeah, it? Yeah, Little Fairy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, well, it's a, it's a fairly famous fire in, in, uh, in New Jersey that incinerated most of the, uh, well, not just Fox, but but most of the film inventory that was stored there. Mm. All kinds of classics were lost there. Negatives. Negative, film negatives, yeah. Uh, and then Fox itself, uh, in the late 1970s, undertook a program to copy and, and destroy the, nit- the remaining nitrate. So very little of the original nitrates, which is pre-1951, really, uh, mm. material uh, exists. Some does. Uh, one of my favorite examples is the original negative of the Jules Dassin picture, Night in the City, mm. which my, my colleague and friend Mike Pogorzelski and I found in a vault in New Jersey years and years ago, buried amongst home, Zanuck home movies and trims and outs, wow. and it's like, well, could this possibly really be the original camera negative of Night in the City? And, and in fact, it was. And we got to show it, we got to make a print of it uh, and show it to, to Jules uh, when he came to the studio. He came to the studio one day, uh, uh, Bruce Goldstein from the Film Forum brought him in, and he hadn't been to the studio a lot since the day Xanax sent him in 1948 to London to make Night in the City because he was going to—he was in blacklist trouble. And uh, he came back; it was like a time machine. It was—it was totally remarkable. But he had never seen a print from the original negative. Wow! Because obviously the negative would have come back to L.A. and then Xanax supervised the cutting. Every one of the classic Fox filmmakers that I was lucky enough to meet, 201 volunteered how Zanuck was like the greatest editor mm. ever. Uh, uh. And and so, yeah, Dassin was like, I oh, know, Zanuck cut the movie. It's completely, and, and that's fine, because he, he did a great job. But he had never seen a print from the Onyx. It was fun to get to show that to him. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the authenticity thing is, is really, I don't know, it's a, it's a kind of a fun question, I think, because what is authentic? Because if you have... If you have multiple original prints of something, you guys probably know because you've seen them. Anybody who loves movies and is lucky enough to live somewhere where they're projected on film, you, you see varying qualities of film, but also projection. Totally separate but important problem. But even die transfer film prints don't match each other, mm-hmm. right? So you say, well, and even if they do, do you, um, you want to match exactly what it actually looked like or... Do you want to match the experience? Mm-hmm. Now, that gets even more subjective and obtuse and maybe dangerous, but I think it's important. You, um, you mean the, the projections of films? Like, in other words, uh, there are things like factors like these were shown with carbon arc projectors and, right. you know, and di- on different, 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 and different powered lamps that got them on the screens. And correct. So what is authentic? Right, so there's that. And there's also... I think, and I'd love to know what you guys think. There's also there's a question of like historical uh, context. Like, imagine if you'd only ever seen a black and white movie. When you see two color, right. it probably looks crazy and awesome. If you've seen UHD HDR your whole life and you see two color, it's like, well, boy, that looks kind of whatever. Brown and muddy. Right. Like, well, yeah. Where are the skin tones? I don't know. You know. You know. <laughs> sure. So, so I think there's probably like I, I've seen, you've seen. I think it might have been at Eastman House, actually. I saw a di- an original die transfer print of Gone with the Wind once. Yeah, there's some reels there. I don't think they have a, a and, full print. but And I had and I'd never seen, I, I'd only ever grown up seeing either reprints or probably more likely, I can't remember now, but I think I probably saw it on television. Sure. Or, and it was some video transfer, and the colors look kind of 
bright, let's say, sure. saturated. I was going to say garish, but that's yeah. I don't mean to judge them. If I, I, that's how I thought the movie looked. And then I see a die transfer print, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's much more muted and, and, and brown. Even, you know, um, Drums Along the Mohawk, Ford's first Technicolor picture, which we've restored, like the die transfer reference reel, isn't, doesn't look like what people remembered it looked like. Right. I remember growing up and only seeing the, the rear window uh, not rear window, the Vertigo um, restoration and re-release. And then we showed three or four years ago Tim Hunter's IB Technicolor print of Vertigo. The, the and for me, release. it was like a whole other movie. Yeah. It was like completely different. Yeah. It freaked uh, me out. Yeah. So what is, yeah, so you, did, you, did you like it better? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, it's, it's, but it's interesting because, but is that, that print... I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But is that print? Does that print represent what Hitchcock wanted, or not? Or I don't know. I mean, we have a, another example is the Gangs All Here. I love. I'm a big fan of the Gangs All Here, and we when we restored it, we accessed a collector's print, uh, a die transfer print uh, that has been used a lot and 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 screened. In fantastic shape, but it was a, it was kind of thought of as oh that's the reference print of the Gangs All Here. And we matched it pretty closely, and the response from fans on home video, which at the time we always had, we do care very much about what people end up thinking. Are like, oh, it looks terrible. Uh, and we made a goosed up, more what you think Technicolor is supposed to look mm. like version. And it was like, yeah, of course, that's what it's supposed to mm. look like. And and it's interesting because because I knew that at least that print, and again, that that print may, may or may not have been totally accurate, etc. But that print didn't have any resemblance really to what what the thing that people ended up liking better. Did. Well, we showed it last December, right? Gangs all here, and along yeah. with Don Argentine Way. And oh, I love They that both went over great. Yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah. yeah. Don Amici. I love Don Argentine. And the Nicholas Boy. Brothers, too. The Nicholas Brothers. Um, Do you have a pecking order, if possible, of like whose opinion you you listen to when it comes to those decisions? Do you try to find original crew members, like the cinematographer? Or? Always, yeah, if we can. I mean, it's that's gotten harder and harder as time marches on, of course. Um, but on movies where the filmmakers are still around, whether that's the director or the cameraman, uh, we always invite them and I've been super lucky to get to work with them um, cameramen especially are, are fascinating I think um, but uh, but uh, on, on some movies we've also asked for help from people who would be experts about that um, on South Pacific for example uh, when we restored that I a friend of mine who's a cameraman named Roy Wagner uh, knew well he knew all of the kind of great old cinematographers, but he was still in touch with uh, Leon Shamroy's family, and he got them to give him the phone number of the place that made the infamous gels sure. that, were, that were used in front, that were moved in front of the camera, uh, and, and, like purple and he and like tracked them down, and, like, and they made him a new a set of them that, oh, we wow. were, like, that we could see, like to the same specifications of this is what they, there was a yellow cyan and a magenta filter, like, oh, here they are. Mm. That's, uh, so yeah, so, so we try to do that, you know, whenever possible. Um, then there are there's cases where you're working with contemporary, living working filmmakers who are not just uh, helping you get it authentic, but are actively changing things too. And I think with Last of the Mohicans, there's a couple different versions that. You oh yeah, with well if it's on Michael Mann. Yeah, if it's a movie that they've made, obviously then that's a then that's a 
a whole other thing, right? There's not only the making it look authentic, but there's making the version of the movie that, if it's possible, that they wanted to make if, the, if it wasn't the version that they already wanted to make. But filmmakers also contribute to the classic film. You're talking about the pecking order. I mean, it's, we've, we've had at Fox, we had a really long collaboration with the Film Foundation. Um, Martin Scorsese's um, started the foundation with a bunch of his peers to sort of promote the importance of film preservation and film culture in America. And and Marty's is super, obviously, a super passionate cinephile and has given great feedback on a ton of our restorations. Like, it's fun to screen. Uh, I was talking about Drums Along the Mohawk. I remember that particularly, like, we're mm-hmm. looking at it, and he says... And I'm not going to do my Martin Scorsese impression <laughs> on your podcast, but uh, he, you know, remembered the moment he saw. It. You know, he always has got the you know, like. I, it was this cinema on this street at this time right. on that year, and I remember it was a reissue, and the green of the of the forest uh, wasn't <laughs> as green as I remembered a die transfer print, and I've subsequently got a die transfer print, and here it is, and you can see the. And so he's so there's uh, there's that in the pecking order too, right? The people right. cinephiles who really love stuff. It's you could drive yourself crazy though because it is ultimately pretty subjective. Yeah. So there is ultimately, I feel like we we need to kind of kind of cling to this uh, intention anyway of trying to be authentic. And you know, just as we've revisited um, restorations because of the quality of the, has changed, the ability to do a higher quality thing has improved. Um, we've also just you know revisited things that I wish we could have done better. Um, that were decisions that were, again, made with all the right intentions that maybe didn't come out the way they should have. Um, the biggest example, personally, for me of that is The King and I, which we which we did. Uh, King and I is one of two movies made in a process known as Cinemascope 55. So to work on them, the negatives are an odd gauge. I think they're the only two movies that exist that way. The film is 55.625 millimeters wide mm. and has foxhole perfs, which are these little square perfs, perforations in the film rather than standard ones that were created by Fox so they could put stereo sound on the sides of the, on either side of the perfs. Mm. But anyway, so in order to, to restore the movies, we had to make the lab we worked with had to create all of the film handling equipment, modify gear to, to transport the film, and it was really fun. And then we decided to do a digital version of it later, and I thought, well, you know, we know what deluxe prints from the mid-50s look like. They kind of tend to, to kind of have a blue where they weren't, they didn't look very naturalistic necessarily, and we should try to be somewhat authentic to that, and this was, I, I'm using the royal we, it was me. I, <laughs> I decided, well, no, we're going to try to be, you know, I'm going to try to do something that feels authentic in a, in a kind of more pure way to what it looks like, and it got terror savage reviews. And why well, this was a, a print that was being reviewed. No, or this is a Blu-ray. Uh, Blu-ray. It was a DVD or Blu-ray. I can't remember. Yeah. It was a it was a it was a home entertainment release. It got totally savage reviews, and I went back at like a year later because it takes a long time from when you finish something mm-hmm. to when it comes out on physical media. It used to anyway, and so it'd been a year since I'd looked at it, and I thought, oh, these people don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Popped it in. And, these people know exactly what they're talking about. <laughs> <It didn't work. laughs> that, that was a that was a failure. <laughs> so there have been a few there have been a few things like that, but it's it's really hard to uh, it's it's you could drive yourself crazy second guessing like well what does one person want versus somebody else. It's really lucky when you have a primary source that you can just put it on 
whoever, Michael Mann or Marty or whoever, to say, sure. like, this is your movie. What is it supposed to look like? Right. Well, I'm here to facilitate that. That doesn't happen too often. Not as often as I wish. Yeah. Had we only started, like, 20 years earlier, it would have been a, right. it would have been a yeah, lot. Yeah, there was a lot of people, a lot more people around back yeah. then. So earlier this year, the Fox Library moved over to the Walt Disney Company. You went with it. I did. Uh, you're now senior VP, and what, I, you're still... Uh, looking over the Fox collection, you're still taking care of that yep. and continuing restorations and new remastering. Is there going to be any yeah. 8K remastering, or is it you're just going to stick with the 4K for now? Well, I think that it depends on the resolution in the film, right? right. Like okay. I think that the, so we have done some 8K. We haven't done all 8K restorations, but we've done a lot of 8K scans on large format movies. So a 65 millimeter, 65 millimeter Sound of Music Patton. Uh, that makes um, the most sense. That makes the most sense, I think. So. But as who knows, as 8K, at some point, at some point, the scan resolution exceeds the resolution in the film, and at that point, maybe there's still a benefit to it for compression and other things. I don't know enough about that yet to, to speak intelligently, but but certainly from a capturing what's in the film, I think we have at this point mostly exceeded the ability the mm. ability of, uh, of, of the scanner has exceeded the uh, resolution of, of film in I think almost every instance. Maybe there are some large, super large format. Uh, you know, low speed, wide open things that are perfect that have more resolution, but probably not. Um, but we are going to continue to re uh, restore movies. I'm lucky that uh, I get to continue uh, looking after the restoration program at Fox, and I'm also responsible for mastering now at Disney. So, so it's still all being worked out. We're all thinking about things, but I hope to get the opportunity to work on and learn about a whole new library. There's all kinds of things. I was, I was uh, the other day I got to see a little bit of the cat from outer space and, <laughs> and I realized like, oh yeah, like uh, my mom had a white VW bug that I was convinced was Herbie when I was a child. Like, wow, I can work on the Herbie movies and uh, you know, Dean Jones, Sandy Duncan, you name it. That's Sounds good. fun to me. The, the cat, yeah, I guess the catalog isn't nearly as extensive as Fox, at least the back catalog, I guess when we're talking like pre-1980s films, there's, there, were, there weren't there aren't as, as weren't as many annual releases as the as Fox, Fox Library kind of. is bigger that way, yeah. But then yeah. there's all of the the later stuff in the in the in the nineties sure. or late eighties, early nineties with uh, uh, Hollywood Pictures, Touchstone, Touchstone. You know, gosh, so many great movies there. Like it's sort of staggering, actually. Like, yeah, movies I've forgotten that were like Splash. Sure, I haven't thought about Splash forever, and that's a touch. That's I like think it was the, the first. first that's the first yeah. Touchstone movie. Like, wow, that's uh, you know. Yeah, one of the first Disney releases that was PG, I think, too. There was oh, only probably, a handful I don't know. before That's, that. So. I'm looking forward to spending the next 20 years learning all of the same weird, oddball intricacies that I've learned about Fox, about uh, about Disney. It's fun. That's great. Uh, will we be seeing some of the Fox catalog titles on Disney Plus, the new streaming service? There will be. Good. There will be. Excellent. How do we leave it mysteriously? Okay. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Well, that sounds great. Ben, do you have any more questions? Uh, I Well, just I can throw this out. Is there something you're working on right now that we should be excited about that might be we might get to see in the near to middle future? Do you like um, Do you like uh, uh, Damnation Alley? I love Damnation Alley. Yeah, we're both <laughs> right. Damnation oh, there's coming, baby. <laughs> I've been, I've been figuring out, we've actually been talking about how to figure out a way to get the show that is the cinematic. I think it'll be a good summer. Uh, yeah. Summer well, you're in. That, that's, uh, yeah, no, it's, that's an interesting one because of the challenge. Like, I just was looking at it uh, last week, and it's the, uh, it's so, 
someone, I don't know if this is true. I think I may have read this on the internet, so maybe you guys can tell me. Mm. There's like, so there's all that weird stuff in the sky. Like, so there's like. It's this, a 1977, 78? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's 1977. It's, it's the same year as Star Wars. Same year as Star Wars. George Pappard. John Michael Vincent, uh, Jackie Earl Haley, Paul yeah. well, McCartney, and, and Don, fresh from working with Bresson and Bertolucci, Dominic Sanda. <laughs> That's right. Paul Winfield really gets the run. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, the well, or yeah, the, that's which is also funny because they, they clearly had a limited cockroach budget. But anyway, yes, giant cockroach. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so the the someone told me that the stuff in the sky, you know, all the exterior shots was just added later because they were like, oh, Star Wars is mm. a thing. We need to do this. I don't know if that's true or not. Huh. But from a restoration point of view it's a really interesting challenge because I was like well do you try to make it look better do you try to not make it look better like there's a lot of really questionable looking visual effects sure. in that mm-hmm. movie um, I think I think there's only so much you can do to, to that one I think I, I like the we're idea we're not going to have any cockroaches let's yeah. see <laughs> I like the idea of it looking like it always did that's a, that's a fun drive in type movie <laughs> it's pretty great yeah. it's, it's pretty great that's good well we'll I'm glad we planted that seed here <laughs> yes. damnation alley uh, hopefully coming soon to a Cinematheque near you. And we've been working on Patton, too, I should say, mm. just so you don't think I'm just a total lowbrow obscurity guy. Uh, uh, is this a new 8K scan? This is an 8K scan, 4K, um, but in um, um, high dynamic range, uh, which I think is a whole other fun thing we can talk about some of the time, maybe. But it's, uh, but it's I think, used correctly. It gives you the opportunity to do something really new and interesting that, that kind of really honors what a really great film print could look like if uh are there are there 8k dcps is there a possibility to project at that rate so it would be it would be reduced to a 4k for for public exhibition excuse me (laughs) so So reductive well we're so we're so grateful for the 4k dcps we we get we can run them here at the cinematech so they they look really good um i can ask you a question yeah absolutely (laughs) is die hard a christmas movie you know, well, or it came out in July, right? So obviously right. they weren't thinking about that at the time. Although, maybe maybe re-releases and uh, video sales. But um, uh, is it a Christmas movie? Is it a movie you can watch at Christmas time? Sure, but it's a great film. You can watch it any time of year. <laughs> I guess I tend to watch it at Christmas time these these days. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it. Gremlins is the same thing. Gremlins was a summer, a summer movie. I remember vividly. I mean, yeah. these are pretty violent See, I, movies. I really think of Gremlins as more of a Christmas movie than Die Hard. Die Hard as a Christmas movie is one of those concepts that just sort of arrived at some point. I was like, oh, oh okay. Yeah. Um, but I think this is these are things that matter to you know you you you, you need to watch horror films in October. You know, right. uh, does it is it is this really a um, does it really right. matter to cinephiles? But I mean, I just on a philosophical level of like Christmas movie, like you and you say Gremlins or Die Hard, immediately Gremlins feels much more much more Christmassy. I think it's a, I think it's I think it's Gremlins is a- anarchy, and I think it's it's sending up Christmas just like it's sending up everything else. Yeah. And in a way, Die Hard I think is you know positions Christmas in that ironic way that you know look at all this mayhem and violence that's going on in, at Christmas time and just makes the film all the more effective and probably you know probably helped the film that they released it in summer and not, not at Christmas time where people were going this is what people want to see at Christmas time uh, if I remember right Die Hard 2 also takes place on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day and, and they released that in the summer too so and that one's got snow it does. Yeah, because it's thing Washington, D.C. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's good. Thanks a lot, Sean. Yeah, you're Thank right. you, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. All right. Yeah.